Smartcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This episode is brought to you in part by GoHenry. GoHenry is on a mission to help millions of kids be good with money. They offer a debit card and app with parental controls designed specifically for children 6 to 18. Kids use the card just like an adult, although they can't run into debt and can only spend under the rules set by their parents. Parents use the app to set automatic allowances and chores, put caps on a child's weekly spending, or decide where the card can be used. Kids also get a great deal with a customized debit card with their name on it, along with an app to help them learn how to manage their money. This is way more than a digital piggy bank. It's a complete money management tool. It's 2020, so get financially fit and make allowance easy and fun. Check out GoHenry.com. That's GoHenry.com. Continuing with our two-episode mini-dive into healthcare, today is my conversation with Ben Gallagher, chairman and co-founder of Performance Phenomics, a healthcare company at the edge of stroke and concussion research. Drafted to the NHL in 2010, Ben played Division I NCAA hockey before graduating from the University of Massachusetts and then subsequently pivoting away from a career in hockey in favor of entrepreneurship. Ben tells us the whole story of his decision to move this direction and the temporary loss of identity that he felt at the time. We also hit on the early days of performance phenomics, of course, the company's big pivot after target market failure, stepping aside as CEO and knowing when to do it, finding your North Star and much more. So without delay, here is my great chat with Ben Gallagher. Where does the story of performance phenomics begin? Would it be helpful to talk about your past history being drafted to the NHL in 2010 and playing Division One NCAA hockey? Where does it start? Yeah, I think I think pretty simply it does start start with myself and my hockey career. Um, I, I would say it, 2010 is an is an easy starting point. Obviously, being drafted into the NHL was a was a pivotal moment for me. And one that that kind of streamlines your path as a as a 17 year old or 18 year old kid to really believing you're heading in one direction, which is you know that 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 of uh, professional hockey. I think where the story really begins is in is it really in like 2013 2014. I had I had suffered a really really bad concussion playing against Michigan State for when I was playing for uh, University of Massachusetts. Got hit from behind and and kind of woke up on the ice and then subsequently remember just being in the dressing room after that. And it was my, it was my, uh, not my first concussion, but my first really, really bad one. 
and I remember just being a bit disoriented and, and, and fairly emotional and, and flying home and not leaving my apartment for about seven days. And, and that kind of traumatic event of having to explain to doctors how I was feeling every day. And it was the first, first realization I've, I've had five surgeries on other parts of my body, both shoulders, my knees and my wrist. And they took a picture uh, every time, right? They, every time I injured my shoulder, they would get an MRI done. And, and that was really this the, the moment where I started to question what was happening um, in the neurologic space, specifically as it related to concussion. And so I felt very confused on why that was. And so that's really what put me on the path to figuring out what was the, what was the problem here and how could, we, how could we help solve that. So I ended up kind of pivoting degrees and, and, and doing pre-med and, and business while I was at University of Massachusetts. And then subsequently through a mentor of mine, got introduced to my co-founder, Dr. DJ Cook. Um, who's out of Queen's University and KGH there. And and that was kind of the evolution of, of how I got introduced to it. Was it clear to you in this moment, post-concussion, that you did not want to go the NHL path? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, one that I don't get asked that often, actually. It was one of those moments where I, pl- I played the game fairly hard. I, I like to play with a bit of an edge. And I remember when I actually finally recovered and, and, and stepped into the game, I had lost my fire. Um, it's not that I didn't love the game of hockey or appreciate what hockey had done for me or the path that it had put me on. It was just that I knew I didn't have it anymore from a mental side of things. And, it, and again, I, I, I got to reiterate it. I wasn't tentative. It's not that I was scared to take a hit anymore. It was just that I was constantly questioning why I was doing it. I come from an educated background. Both my, my mother's a lawyer, my father's an engineer. And so education was always a very a prominent thing in our household and, and something that uh, we took pride in. And so I started to understand maybe what I could do to help the cause. I think that that's really where my mind went. Uh, my roommate in college actually retired due to concussions um, while we were still playing. So sometimes the, the story gets a bit misunderstood with me. I didn't, I didn't leave because of a concussion. I went on to, to play my senior year. I just, I just kind of had lost that drive and passion and, and, and felt, felt a little bit confused on maybe what, what might be next in my path. But I knew that Hockey wasn't going to be that next step, and and it certainly felt like medical school or something in the medical field was definitely going to be uh, an area that I wanted to focus on. So if you feel that this pivot is happening or about to happen in your life, and you don't have full clarity on it, but you sort of feel a tug in this direction, how did you determine that entrepreneurship, let's call it that, was the right path for you? I would say that uh, I stumbled into entrepreneurship. I, I think that initially, Actually, I was pretty geared to head towards medical school. Being a fairly analytical and cerebral individual, I, I met with 12 doctors just to get their perspective on what it meant to be a, a medical doctor. And there was one in particular that, that said to me, it was, it was obviously a very uh, influential moment. He said, you know, Ben, you seem like a good kid. Why do you want to be a doctor? I said, well, I want to help people. And he told him my story, a little bit my experience. And he said, you know, you're going to see about 30,000 patients in your, in your lifetime as an MD. And it's no guarantee that you're going to impact that many individuals. And I said, go on. And, and he said, so the best way that I view making a difference in the way you can make the most difference is to, is to start a company. And, and if you're interested in helping influence the way people's lives are lived and, and from the health standpoint, it's going to be starting a, a medical device company or something that's in the health and wellness space. And so that's really what kind of stirred my stirred the pot initially for me to start thinking about entrepreneurship and wondering what that may be. Um, and at a very similar moment in time, I was introduced to Dr. DJ Cook, who's running a research lab at a Queens University and was specifically looking at traumatic brain injury and his expertise is really in stroke. 
Um, and so him and I were discussing these things and, and that's, that's really what kind of got that ball rolling for me on the entrepreneurship side. I would maybe add in just one more comment, which is both my parents were entrepreneurs, both subsequently have taken companies public and, and operated, uh, companies for, for many, many years. So I think that that entrepreneurial, uh, spirit has always been in me and I'm very, very lucky to have, uh, my mom and my, my dad to be able to bounce ideas off. of. But from this doctor's point of view, I mean, at least you know, as a listener hearing you tell the story, it sounds like this is a very, not only sobering, but but somewhat ag- aggressive piece of advice to be giving someone who is potentially at a significant fork in the road and having to make, you know, what, what I would describe as a very important career decision. You know, I mean, there's a reason, obviously, you've got a podcast, your questions are very, very stirring. I, I would say that I met with 12, you know, as I mentioned. So mm-hmm. it's, it was the one that resonated most with me. I would say that if you know 100 people were sitting in my shoes and sat down with the same 12 doctors, I, I don't know what percentage would, would agree with the one that I tended to agree with. But I think we've all been in a certain situation, whether it's a, a fork in the road um, of some sort in our life, and, and something somebody said really resonated with you. Uh, and it just made all of the other advice you'd received to date uh, seem irrelevant. And I think that was that moment for me. And there's something I, I think that gets a bit uh, lost in in leaving something like hockey or sport or you know pivoting careers or um, you know going through a breakup, whatever it may be. And and that's a loss of identity. And I was really struggling with that after I left uh, playing. I was I was deciding not to play, and I actually didn't tell anyone um, for the first little while that I wasn't going to continue playing after university. And I think it was just losing that, losing that insight on, on being introduced as a hockey player. Oh, this is, this has been the hockey player, et cetera. Um, it's such an easy way that people have been introducing me in a, in a way that I understood being introduced, uh, from, from, you know, being five years old, basically, uh, it was kind of what, what dominated my life. And I'm sure, um, a lot of people relate to that in, in different ways. And I think that I just took solace in knowing that I was now embarking down a path that was looking to impact people's lives. And I didn't really know at the time it was going to be entrepreneurship, but I think that what that doctor did for me was really spur that fire again. As I mentioned, I lost that edge when I was playing. Um, and I think I regained it after that conversation. And then you fall into this relationship or, or this friendship with, with Dr. Cook and Correct. he becomes your co-founder essentially for this brand new company. Yeah. So, you know, it, Earlier to you know, earlier to performance phenomics, I, I went down to take part in 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 some of the research that Dr. Cook was was doing, which was you know really research around um, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. So, I was interested because a mentor of mine put me in touch with him, and and he was using imaging to to try and understand what was going on in individuals' brains who had suffered uh, concussions. And this is answering the question that I had, you know, three, four, five years ago which was why is nobody taking a picture of my brain and what can we come from? Well, what can come from this? And Dr. Cook, obviously an extremely compelling individual by nature and, and, uh, somebody who, who as a neurosurgeon and, uh, with his PhD in translational stroke research very much understands the quantitative nature of brain disorder and disease, uh, to its very core. And I think that that was really what stirred my interest in getting to know him. And it was just through conversations with him that I felt like this needed to be commercialized. I, there's a, there's a saying that I like to use, um, 
when talking about academia, it's not that uh, I disagree with academia at all. Actually, I think that research is some of the most important funding opportunities for for donors. You know, the, the best way to scale research or scale academia is to commercialize it. So what does the company look like at this point? It's just you and Dr. Cook and you have this vision. You have a, you have a strategy, obviously. You've got a thesis. How does this thing grow? Dr. Cook's from a very, very small town. And, and uh, another gentleman that we brought on very early on is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chris Murray. Um, and he's a bioinformatician by, by nature. He did his PhD at Johns Hopkins University. And the three of us kind of were sitting down and, and discussing concussion in nature and, and, and mild traumatic brain injury. And I think our North Star was, was always changing the way that brain disorders are quantified and really informing that pathway to better care. So everything kind of kicks off by initially looking at athletes and, and high-performance athletes. And that was where I came from. It was, a, it was an area of research that, that very much interested me. Um, we took on a small amount of funding um, very early uh, from just one partner um, that, that we wanted to get involved. And, and the whole notion was, how can we do this for a year and see what this is going to look like potentially with the, with the ability to turn into a, a real business? And I think as we started to compare those who had been, those who had suffered traumatic brain injury to those who didn't, we started to see changes. Um, and we started to see these things in a, in a number of different fashions. And I think that that's really what led us to believing that this was an opportunity to scale and uh, that that's really what led us to kind of raising our, our first first amount of money from some some high net worths and some angels in, in the Toronto Toronto area, which have obviously you know put us down the pathway of kind of getting to where we are today. So you mentioned athletes, but this type of data is obviously valuable to managers, coaches. Did you have clarity on on who your core customer was at the beginning? Yeah, this is this is a, this is a great point. So. Initially, uh, as, as I mentioned, we, we were targeting athletes. And as you astutely pointed up, uh, picked up, it's, we were heading down talking to you know, team owners, managers, uh, talking to players, obviously. And there's, there's one thing that's, that's got to be noted and, and is most important is that we're dealing with uh, MRI scans on individuals' brains, right? So all of the data is, is, is highly sensitive and, and anonymized. And it ended up being a very difficult sales cycle. So this is this is where we initially headed down, which was, you know, targeting these teams and, and ownership groups. And we came into a a bit of a crux with uh with with these ownership groups, which was they wanted to own the data and they wanted access to unanonymized data. And we as a company were not willing to give up any unanonymized data because it was not in, in tune with number one healthcare policies and HIPAA compliance and number two, our internal privacy policies. We spent about a year, year and a half Kind of heading down this route, all the while creating relationships with Canadian special forces and and um, wanting to you know go down more of a research path, and it really allowed us to realize that sports was not fit today for where we were heading. And I think that that's because we were heading down a line which was this is not FDA approved, and therefore we're getting scrutiny on the validity of the technology. And so we kind of, we took a step back and, and realized that with the new FDA guidelines on computer assisted devices, um, obviously with AI and, and, and machine learning being so prominent in today's language that we needed to head down a more regulated path in order to, in order to succeed as far as commercialization goes. Um, and so those are, those were the crux with sports. And that's kind of what's gotten us to this point in time, which is kind of taking back, uh, taking a step back, realizing that. Sports was not a technology failure. 
so much as it was a market failure. And so I think that grittiness is, has been the biggest success point of our team, which is constantly going back to the drawing board and figuring out how we can solve problems backwards from that. Do you feel pressure from investors when you're repositioning or pivoting strategy in the manner that you're describing? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, listen, when uh, investors wrote checks into our company, you know, we were targeting sports and athletes and now we're heading down a healthcare path. So I don't think that that's an easy conversation to have, uh, nor should it be. But I think most important to that is I come from the sports world. Traditionally, I I would say that I know uh, most of my contacts come from that, that sports uh, side of things. Dr. Cook is a neurosurgeon and has his PhD in translational stroke research from the University of Toronto, did his postdoctoral work, work at Stanford. So he really understands the healthcare market. And I think that that allows us to really well define our, our total addressable market and taking things through FDA approval. Although our current investor group may be, or you know, our prior uh, investor group that was investing primarily around the sports application may not understand that it's very well defined on how that path uh, actually is is realized and how that commercialization process uh, happens. Um, I want to come back to something that you said regarding ownership groups. Yes. So if you look at your software, it's yep. obviously very sophisticated in terms of analytics and the data and the insights that it provides. And this type of data, I'm assuming, can inform decisions that management makes at an NHL organization or or similar. So when you talk about anonymous results or anonymous data versus available information, what what kinds of insights were these ownership groups asking for versus what insights you were willing to provide? Yeah, so I, I think that um, this is exactly the conversation that uh, that kind of drove us to a halt with sports, which was at the end of the day, uh, Adam, it's your brain. So if you were to come in and get a scan you know, there's a, there's a consent form that you have to sign. And there's, you know, obviously an understanding that your data is going to be anonymized and only for the ownership of, of yourself and the aggregate data is subsequently used to help increase our database and help increase our insights. The number one comment that came back was, can I use this data to avoid a contract or can I use this data to inform negotiations? Uh, which I can, I can truthfully tell you, we, we were not expecting that to be part of the conversation uh, when we initially walked in the door of these, these sports organizations. The, the simple answer is no, you can't use that. Part of the reason you can't use that is because we're not a uh, regulated medical device. Right now, if you were to go look at the NFL combine, there are MRI scanners on site to look at individuals' shoulders, knees, necks, and any other prior injuries they may have. The reason for that is because those are very well understood that if you, you image somebody's knee, you're going to find a you know, potentially a torn meniscus or MCL or whatever the whatever the case may be, and therefore they can start to understand you know the risks that are associated with that. We're still in a burgeoning area of of understanding quantitatively um, where somebody's brain lies and compared to controls. I just we're just not we're just not in a state to actually be able to share that data in a compelling fashion. What we were hoping for with the sports teams was to be able to baseline an individual at the beginning of the season. And then if they were suffered an event, we could, we could look at them afterwards. And I think that, you know, high level at performance phenomics, what we're doing is, is understanding the structure, the function and the physiology of an individual's brain. And then we can look at location exposure and severity of injury. And so from that, the whole goal was really to help individuals return to play faster and help, you know, increase, uh, you know, I like to use 
kind of two alliterations, which is put somebody on a pathway to peak performance or a roadmap to recovery. That was the really the goal. And I kind of was maybe naive and young and, and altruistic, thinking that ownership groups were going to want to just do the best by their players, which is giving them access to the best data possible and kind of iterating through this process with us and helping their players get better and kind of giving themselves a competitive edge. When really it was the flip side of that, which is how can I eliminate my my weakest link, if you will. Um, and I you know that statement may be a bit draconian, but um, I think at the high level, that was where the conversation started to differ. This might sound like a, a naive or stupid question, but I'm curious, are there big sports leagues that are employing this kind of strategy to make these type of decisions about players? There, yeah, there are not currently any sports leagues that are that are uh, using this technology to to uh, assess any players today. Interesting. If I can make one comment on that, I think that, yeah. you know, my, my, my space, I, I, you know, obviously it's hockey and, and, and football are, it's very well understood that individuals are, you know, hitting their heads and it's not well understood on how much damage that's causing uh, over the long term. What I would say is that uh, there may be more success to be had in, in sports such as, well, maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't name specific sports, but sports that are, are less contact oriented, you know, such as soccer or basketball, uh, these types of sports where the end goal is just the performance of the athlete. And they're less concerned about making decisions based on impacts that an individual may have suffered and therefore the, the viability of the athlete from a longevity standpoint. Um, I've got no data to, to back up that statement. It's just, it's just kind of my gut feel Pr- prior to us pulling back from this. We had some preliminary conversations, but we needed to move a little faster based on uh, where our investor group was at. And and so that's really what, what pushed us down this healthcare path. Well, we'll get to this new positioning in one sec, but to your point, this, this software would have informed some decisions around optimization of a, of a soccer player's performance, for example, because you have data points on, on vision and on movement and things of that nature that are critical to a soccer player's success, correct? Yeah, correct. I think that um, you know, the way that we, we describe it. And again, I, I like to use the rule of three, which is, you know, how you see, how you process and how you react. And I like to say that that's, that's really at the height of it is in sports because things are happening in such a, a fast manner, but it's, it's true in business. It's, it's pattern recognition is, is extremely important. When you look at the best of the best in venture capital, for instance, they see decks and they look at them for 15, 25 seconds and they, they know if they want a meeting or if they don't. Um, you start to see this in, you can imagine in, in surgery, I mean, with, with uh, the best neurosurgeons or orthopedic surgeons in the world, right? I mean, your ability to see, process and respond to whatever deficit you may need to be treating on the day-to-day basis is immensely powerful. And so that's, you know, from a performance standpoint where we think our technology can be extremely helpful. I think that those are ancillary uh, opportunities and compared to our ability to uh, enter into that healthcare market and and have a you know a real quantifiable difference on informing the pathway to better care, which has you know frankly always been our north star um, as a company. So, how do you describe the next phase of this business? And can you talk a little bit about your repositioning of this uh, for concussion and stroke and everything else that you're working on? Yeah. So, um, I think the biggest thing is is that we you know we've now got an automated analysis tool that we can um, look at individuals. And I, we, we like to look at performance phenomena as a platform technology. We use, uh, we look at five different images in the MRI. 
Uh, we amalgamate those images and create an injury map based on an individual. And those are classified based on whichever state an individual comes in, whether they're healthy, whether they're, they've just recently suffered a stroke or whether they've suffered a concussion. It's, it's going to spit out kind of a different injury map. We've engaged, as I mentioned earlier, Canadian Special Forces around a mild traumatic brain injury uh, study. I think that concussion is, is obviously a hot and burgeoning topic, and it, it gets a lot of press in the news. Um, but I still think we're a little ways away from that uh, being a really uh, viable thing, because I think right now everything is still qualitative. You start to see things like the impact test, and eye movements, and blood biomarkers moving into that area. But I think that over time, it's going to be imaging. It's just going to take a little longer for us to get there because we're going to have to go through those basic science steps to, to really prove that we can show what we can show. And then more importantly, what we can do about it once we've shown that there are uh, correlated biomarkers from an imaging standpoint on, on helping somebody get better. When it comes to stroke, this is really DJ's expertise. And I can speak a little bit about kind of how we've gotten there. But on a year-over-year -year basis in the U.S., stroke is responsible for about $100 billion burden of care. Um, and so that's really where we got interested. And most importantly, um, when you look at stroke, when an individual comes into uh, a hospital after they've suffered a stroke, the, they're only about 17% accurate currently about predicting whether somebody's going to be mild to moderately impaired or moderately to severely impaired. And so from a prognostic standpoint, with our data we believe that we're we're going to be able to increase um, the efficiency of hospital systems, getting people down the pathway to better care sooner, and getting people out of the ICU faster for those who don't need to be there. Let's shift into the uh, business ops for a sec. So, as you've repositioned the company uh, in this way, is there new rearchitecting of your software, of the existing software, and and if not, um, how do you scale this? Yeah, so that's that, that's really the beautiful thing is that as I mentioned earlier, it's 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 a platform. So nothing's changed on how we acquire data. Still the same MRIs, uh, still the same sequences that we use to acquire that data. And if anything, I actually believe this this opportunity to be significantly significantly larger for us uh, from a commercializing standpoint. We're really thinking about commercializing this in in three different ways, and that's through a licensing model, through a SaaS model, and then potentially through clinical trials. Um, I'll, I'll work backwards. So from the clinical trial standpoint, um, there hasn't been a successful stroke trial uh, in the last 20 years. And I think that that comes from screening of patient populations from, from the drug perspective. And so we think there's an opportunity for us to um, help these drug trials by screening out patients that we know definitively aren't going to be successful from, uh, from a patient population for that drug. From a SAS model, you can imagine uploading your data to, to the cloud and then having us analyze that and then give back a report uh, to an individual. You can think about third-party imaging centers such as Acumen or RadNet, which have uh, you know, each individually three to, three to 500 imaging centers all across the United States um, where they own and operate uh, MRIs in the private sector. And then from a licensing perspective, you can imagine uh, you know, hospital systems such as Kaiser Permanente um, you, know, you can think about MRI providers such as GE and Siemens licensing this as a protocol basis um, that they can then offer to the hospital systems and to their patients on a way to you know, assess you know, stroke prognostics or you know, ideally in the future concussion diagnostics. But again, still a little ways from, from the concussion side. We think the earliest path to commercialization is through stroke. And that's going to be through, through setting up clinical studies, which we're just in the process of getting those online. 
And and given that fact, have you ranked these in terms of lowest hanging fruit licensing SaaS or clinical? Yeah. So I mean, we're we're currently in discussion with uh, with a few strategics, and and I think that the lowest hanging fruit is going to be SaaS, just because it's a lower barrier to entry for somebody to test drive test drive the product. You know, you can upload the data and get the report back and see how that's going to go. And I think that licensing will be a little bit longer of a sales cycle, but obviously much stickier. Because I think once you've got this integrated, you can imagine that whenever somebody's coming in after a stroke, you're not going to only give it to some patients and not others. Not to mention very attractive repositioning of the company for attracting venture money. No question. Yeah, no question. So um, I think that we, we've already initially kind of kicked off a lot of those conversations. And I think that one of the one of the issues that we had prior to this kind of as an anecdote is, is are you a tech company or are you a healthcare company? And and it was a great question. And again, like another one of these questions that I just was not prepared for. And my initial answer was a tech company. I think that uh, a simple way to, to look at what we were trying to do before was, was this notion of 23andMe uh, for the brain, which was, you know, giving insights to individuals on, on their brain health um, and, and in an anonymized fashion, um, but personalized for them based on, you know, obviously outset of data. But there's a lot of barriers to entry to that. I mean, 23andMe can send you a kit. It's a couple hundred bucks. It's very easy. MRIs are not easy to access. They're very expensive in nature. And so now with the pivot direct to healthcare um, and heading down this pathway, again, it just streamlines that conversation where people really understand what we're doing. It's a very tangible problem that we're trying to solve. And, and it's just a much easier... There are many less barriers to those those initial conversations of, are you a tech company or are you a healthcare company? I think we've answered that, which is we're... we're going to be a healthcare company. So you've been at this, let's say for the better part of, of almost five years. And as a co-founder and CEO of this business, you're, you're, you're scaling now, you're pivoting in a new direction and you're, to my knowledge, stepping away or transitioning out of your role as CEO and you've brought somebody else in. So how did you come to this realization and, and what's been your experience in that regard? Yeah, I, I, listen, it, w- it wasn't an easy conversation uh, with shareholders and current shareholders and investors. Uh, it wasn't an easy conversation internally uh, amongst our amongst our team. But I think when you pivot down something such as healthcare, you, you see, well, maybe <laughs> you see less Mark Zuckerberg types or, or Evan Spiegel's, if you will, in the healthcare space. You see a little bit more gray hair and, and a few more people who have done it before. And I think there's a reason for that which is selling into the healthcare system is extremely convoluted and complex. Uh, when you think about procurement and, and uh, you know, FDA trials and, you know, speaking with sophisticated MDs and, and PhDs in, in certain spaces, this takes time to gain that knowledge. And so we went through a process and, and me personally saying that, you know, this is, this is our, our baby that we've created and, and, and been operating, but I need to do what's best for the company. And that's, bringing in somebody who's sold into healthcare systems before, who understands the industry and who knows the trials and tribulations that are associated with this. And so that led me to going out and trying to find a, a new CEO. And through about an eight-month process of me banging on doors and, and, and cold emailing individuals, I stumbled across an individual named Peter Robertson who formerly ran GE Healthcare's Canadian business. And, and so after eight months of conversations and and a lot of time, you know, around our team and getting to know us, uh, we've, we've got him signed on and, and he's now stepped into a role. And, and over the past kind of four or five months that he's been involved with us, uh, the step change for us has just been unbelievable. I mean, I think 
bringing him around to current investors and 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 shareholders and the, his his relationships with with you know our potential customers and strategic acquirers even in the future they're immense for me i think there was a, a very difficult aspect of letting go mm-hmm. something i wasn't prepared really to go through but in that i've gained a mentor and and a, a and a colleague that uh that i can take solace in and and um really a lot of comfort in and, and i've seen that even just with the, the past four months of of us communicating and working together you know as you talk through this i think back to your um story about leaving hockey and this idea of letting go and and pursuing something else the comparison i would make is i i played hockey i didn't invent or create hockey and in this situation performance phenomics will always be something that i was there from from day one and and bringing in peter to take it to the next level that will i can never no one can ever take away that that day one experience and that day one the day one trials and tribulations and going through the pivots and getting us to these situations today i think that that would be the differing factor this will always be something that i'm i'm proud of and and uh not that i'm not proud of my time in hockey but this will always be something that i've got maybe a deeper connection to whether or not i've got the title of ceo or I'm the you know the chairman and founder of the company, or chief strategy officer of the company. It's it's to me that's irrelevant. It's more important that the business is viable and continues to grow, and ultimately reaches the goal that we're hoping for, which is to impact individuals' lives and as many as we possibly can. Because at the end of the day, that was why I got into this business in the first place, and that's what that's what really that conversation that I had with that doctor at the time uh, inspired me to do. If there are founders li- listening to you. And thinking to themselves um, as a founder, co-founder of their business, whether or not they should step aside, what sorts of questions do you think they should be asking themselves? I think that it's a it's an internal uh, dialogue that you need to have with yourself, and and I think it comes from 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 a real deep honesty, which is, am I truly the best person to run this company? Do I have what it takes to? carry this to success. And I think that too many individuals are holding on to the reins extremely tight when every founder's goal, I, I'm, everyone that I've come across at least, their goal is to, to make their business extremely successful and grow it to scale and, and, and impact as many people uh, as they can and, and, and watch the business succeed. And when you come from that light and you come from uh, you know a humble thought process and things start to things start to clear up fairly quickly i would say that i'm very lucky in in my shareholder base i've got you know very very close uh, individuals that i've grown our relationships over the past you know 4 years and it was a few dinners and a few pints that we shared where i was being fairly open and honest with them about my my feeling and and my thought process around it and and my worries around it um and and I think that having mentors and advisors and and uh, individuals that you can bounce these ideas off of uh, is extremely important. And then finally, I think that one of the things that was really important to me is is, is spending a lot of time with with uh, Peter in advance of actually bringing him on board. Obviously, there was a there was a, a courting event where I was trying to you know get him excited about performance phenomics. But once that excitement was there, it was. I was asking myself questions like, could I work with Peter on the day to day? Can I can I see the team working with him? How's he going to integrate? Is he ready for for what it means to have significant shareholder base and, and raise capital and 
and then subsequently execute on a small business that that isn't from from a from a larger corporate sector. Is he willing to get his hands dirty? And and for me, all of those questions were yes, um, but they may they may not have been. I, I I could be very very lucky. I know I am very lucky, but um, you know I, I I'm sure that this this uh, this path is 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 a difficult one, but uh, one I think that more people should be asking themselves. Yeah, that's that's helpful and very good perspective. There's just one thing back to, back to, um, you know, maybe, maybe the transition that I've, that I've been going through over the past eight months, both with the business pivoting and with, um, you know, transitioning out of the CEO role and, and bringing in a, uh, a new CEO, which was, I kept this in my, in my frame of mind the entire time, uh, which was micro speed and macro patience, which is my way of understanding do everything you possibly can do in the day to day to make yourself successful and make your business successful with always understanding what that macro goal is and always understanding what your north star is what are you driving towards and i think that that really helped me number 1 pivot out of sports from the business side and number 2 pivot out of being the ceo as a title um but still my role really hasn't changed too much um and bringing in peter and our north star has always been to change the way uh, that brain disorders are quantified and inform that pathway to better care for individuals. It has always been that from day one, that was our North Star. And today, you know, four or five years later, that's still our North Star. And so in and amongst that, what can you do on the daily to make yourself better without losing sight of that? And so sometimes having that North Star allows you to take a deeper perspective that it's bigger than yourself. And that humility, I think, allows you to have that that radical candor to, to maybe say to yourself, maybe I'm not the right person to be at the helm of this, but obviously your role is not uh, diminished or it's devalued or devalued in any way. You are just as important. Um, it may just not be uh, the front man. Performancephenomics.com. I assume that's still the place to go, right? For more information on the company. It is. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dark hole because it's everything still, uh, based on uh, the sports aspect of things we are in the process of of getting our our new website launched but yes for for lack of a better term that is our website and uh still the place to go okay ben well this has been great man this has been uh, a very insightful wide wide ranging conversation so thanks so much for doing doing this and and thanks for the time no doubt anytime thanks uh thanks adam and i appreciate uh, everything that you're doing for for entrepreneurs in the space E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. 
Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.